Welcome once again to the Conversations That Matter podcast. I'm your host, John Harris, with a guest we've had on before, Stephen Wolf. We're going to talk today again about his book, The Case for Christian Nationalism. But it's a little, going to be a little different than the last videos that we did on this, where we just went over the book and I asked questions and we tried to uh, figure out what the book was saying. And this this is different because the book's now been out for a few months and a number of reviews have come in. In fact, some of you have sent me some of these reviews. And I knew Stephen was going to be working on uh, crafting some rebuttals. And I want to give him the opportunity on this podcast, since not all of you are going to go read these reviews or Stephen's rebuttal, to let him speak to this and the response, the reception, uh, and some of the people who are against what he's saying. What is their argument? Why does he disagree? And so I appreciate you giving me your time, Stephen. Welcome to the podcast once again. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So uh, how's it been? <laughs> how's the reception to your book? Uh, it's one of those. Uh, it's a, one of those strange things where it's uh, the, the reception on the official evangelical outlets has been largely negative, uh, except for a couple, a couple of people or a few people saying positive things. Uh, which they all got beat up for it <laughs> to say something positive about the book. Um, but yeah, it's, it's one of those weird things where I, I'm not, I mean, usually the evangelical kind of elites go after people who are institutionally connected, who have, you know, all these, these various friends that they can associate his bad ideas with them. And, um, but I'm really not any of that. So in, in one sense, I'm kind of grateful that I'm this outlier who has been, who's got a lot of attention. Uh, the, but the downside is it's all been fairly, fairly negative. Um, but it, it's one of those things where, you know, how you, you look at Rotten Tomatoes uh, and it's yeah. the, the movie, the movie has like, it's like 99% of the top critics say it's terrible, but then all like the, the popular crowd is like, this is the best movie. <laughs> yeah. So um, I've gotten a lot of uh, overall, it's been very positive, but, uh, but if you just searched my name, you'd think on, on Google, you'd think it would be all negative, but. Um, but in general, the, the the more I guess the the non elite, uh, the people from lower places, I guess, um, have, have have liked it in general. So it's interesting um, because you know my I published two books on social justice, and um, you know I have two graduate level degrees from evangelical institutions, nonetheless. And you know I thought the work well, <laughs> people who uh, were kind enough to tell me what they thought who. Uh, were in evangelical circles, whether they endorsed it or just privately totally talked to me about it, you know, were raving about it, thought it was, you know, good research in, in both cases. And and I'm not trying to toot my own horn. I'm just saying there, there's it's weird to me that my my books initially, I don't know if they, I don't think they went quite as high as your yours did in the category. I don't know Amazon's categories, but they did shoot up pretty high initially. And I didn't get any of these reviews for like they just ignored it. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering, and you tell me if you think this is off or not, but I'm I'm wondering if because a lot of what's come out um, has been, it hasn't been a positive vision. In fact, I want to write something. I, I am in the middle of writing something that's more of a positive vision, but most of what conservatives write, if we do write something, it tends to be a critique of whatever the left is doing. And yeah. I'm wondering if that's why you are getting so much opposition because you did something different. You wrote a very positive vision for what you want to see and steps to get there. And that is a competing uh, 
uh, you, you have competing purposes, I suppose, with the regime evangelicals. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's I, I think the positive account. Uh, yeah, is I, I think it, but it also not only that, but I think it's because they deemed it as as um, as dangerous as well. So they they find out that this guy who has a Ph.D., is writing a, a book defending Christian nationalism. And, and some of the people who saw earlier editions of it saw that it was a very large book. It quotes everyone from, you know, from, uh, from uh, Aristotle to, to, to Calvin, to Turretin. So th- it's very well, uh, I should say, you know, as I'd said, grounded within the Christian tradition and supported by a lot of these quotes. And so I think that it was just deemed as, wow, this guy's coming to conclusions that we are not, that are unacceptable, but he's doing it with this large book with a lot of quotations with where he's offering syllogisms and all this sort of thing. So I, I think there was like this, this um, fear that it was dangerous and that it had to be kind of crushed. And so they, they brought out some of the, the, the bigger guns to, to do it. I, you know, I maybe, I don't think it was a it's conspiracy, but, I think there there was this interest that that I'm not just some I mean I'm kind of an obscure guy. Not anymore, you're not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I mean I I think there was this sense, and I, I didn't kind of tout my credibility. I'm not that sort of person, you know. You know, I'm not like that. I know. Yeah. I, I think there was that fear that okay, this Doctor Wolf is writing this book, and we have to somehow say it's dangerous and unserious and stupid or something. So I think that's kind of what. Yeah, no, it's interesting because you went to uh, Canon Press, it publishes your book, and you would think with the kind of comprehensive, academic, high-level work that you're talking about, it like an academic press would be interested in that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, and, and it's, it's just interesting to me that for people like yourself, who are very accomplished, who have thought deeply about these things and done a lot of academically rigorous work to uh, form your conclusions, you, you're... You're going around the guild, so to speak, to get this out there. And it's laymen who are buying it. Well, I mean, there's obviously pastors and professors who actually I'd be curious. Do you have people coming to you secretly, kind of like Nicodemus with Jesus by night and saying, Stephen, I uh, really like the book, but don't tell anyone. (laughs) Oh, I mean, yeah. One of the things about being uh, like outwardly, openly right wing is that other people who are secretly right wing come up to you and be like, Oh, I love your book and this and that. Blah, blah. So I, I've had yeah, dozens of people uh, just, and just even randomly, I was at some school function for, with my kids and someone walks up and says, are you Steve Wolf? And I'm like, yeah, it's like, Oh, I love your book. <laughs> so, um, and they're, you know, like looking around, um, but, uh, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, there, there has been, there has been that, that, that that's actually been kind of cool that, that uh, People just randomly have come up to me and said, I like you. Like well, I got one for you. There's a guy in my church in high school who went to class and a speech class and they were doing some kind of like a, um, I don't know, forming a government type of spe- like, what's your ideal government? Some topic like that. And he surprised me a little. He told me, oh, yeah, I did this whole like uh, Christian nationalist presentation and I used Stephen Wolf's present stuff. And so this is in a public high school in New York. Yeah. And um, so I'm wondering to what extent your book has reached uh has has gone in these different w- ways but um anyway uh yeah it sounds like it's it's going pretty well and it, you're doing pretty well despite some of the backlash from the more um i i would i don't know what we want to call them because i don't want to give them a negative pejorative here but the elite evangelicals or the uh 
gatekeeper, so to speak. I want to talk about some of these guys. You just wrote um, an article. Was it yesterday? I think you published it on. Uh, was it Brian? Is it Brian Matson? Is that the name? Yeah, Brian Matson. Yep. And you, I think I had two or three people send me his review when it came out, and I don't think they read your book, but they thought that this answered your book. And so you wrote an extensive reply to him, and I know you're planning on doing that with others. Yesterday, I went and tried to just use a search engine. I think I just used Google to see, okay, what are the top uh, reviews of the book? And of course, the first one, you probably guess, the first one on the list, if I Google your book and review is, you want to guess? Which one do you think it is? Um, the Youngs, maybe? Yeah, it's Gospel Coalition. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it's Gospel I mean, Coalition. I figure the algorithm pushes Gospel Coalition up to the top. It does. It's interesting, yeah. So... DeYoung's review is lengthy. Some of them are, are also lengthy. Some of them are shorter, but this one is, is one of the longer ones. And um, I, I pulled some quotes from it that I thought might be helpful for you to respond to. So I'll just read uh, the first one. Um, and, and this one came up in a number of reviews, and which is why I want to start here. He says this, in a footnote, Wolf rejects modern racialist principles and denies that he's making a white nationalist argument but if we cannot accept the creedal nation concept and if ethnicities are grouped by cultural similarity, it's an open question how much cooperation and togetherness blacks and whites, not to mention Asians and Hispanics and Native Americans will ever share or if they should even try to live and worship together. So the question I have is if your rejection of the proposition nation place it, it places a bear or i should say does your rejection place a barrier in the way of working together with other cultures especially in the church well I, one of the problems with the young's review uh is i as i as i recall he, he basically says yeah you know wolf does have this kind of idiosyncratic view of, of ethnicity which i don't think it it is but um but uh it, but then when he starts talking about ethnicity it's like he jettisons exactly how i describe it in the book uh and and, and then starts equating it with race so it's that when i say ethnicity in the book i i'm i'm not talking about this uh something that that ties into blood that that is uh i i describe it i i use a sort of i call it a vulgar phenomenology which is how we how we relate to other people and how we can kind of get along and work together in these common projects of life. And this involves some kind of cultural similarity like language. So if you're going to build a building, uh, you know, if you're going to build a building, uh, you have to work together and you have to speak the same language. If, if you didn't speak, you know, just again, like Tower of Babel, you start, all of a sudden you can't speak the same language and now you can't actually complete the project you began on. So there has to be some level of similarity for you to have Civil, fellow, civil fellowship and a common kind of civil civil project. Um, but that, even though I, I do say there is some sense in which your ancestral connection to land matters, and you'll have to like read the book to see how I, I do this. I, I don't say it's according to DNA. So it, for, for him to say that, that um, it's an open question how much cooperation you have between whites and blacks and Asian and, and Hispanics is actually just racializing what I said was non-racial. Um, I, we, we've all had, uh, especially as, as Americans growing up, we've had um, real friendships with people uh, and who are very similar to us uh, culturally, 
um, with some differences who are who have different ans uh, ancestral origins, right? So um, growing up, I had friends who were uh, ancestrally rooted in China uh, uh, and rooted in uh, Mexico and other places growing up. So even though these people are different by DNA, uh, we can still actually really be have what I, what I call like civil fellowship. We can actually be a part, full members of the same project. Uh, but that's not to say that uh, someone who just arrives from another country, say China or Mexico, can just arrive and be with us and have the full, uh, be fully able to fellowship with us in terms of our civil project and our, our national project. It simply is just not the case. Now we can be hospitable to them. We can actually receive them, but it's going to take time, usually generations for uh, the, these people to kind of integrate and become uh, sort of one people, but it's not racialized. It's not as if I, so what, what DeYoung does is he actually, he, he essentially says that, well, uh, we know who can get along based upon a DNA test. Like we'll look up a DNA test and Wolf is like a quarter Italian and Harris is not, not Italian. Therefore we can't get together. We can't get along. Or this guy's hundred percent Chinese and, and this guy is Scottish and therefore he cannot get along. But that's not at all what I, what I, what I argued. So I think DeYoung just kind of, again, he conflated this racialist idea uh, with my account of ethnicity and it, it now mess things up but I, the, I think so so i mean let me just address like in the church sure um we're protestants and so we believe that there's a ministry of the word which means that a, a minister is going to speak up there and he's going to use the common vernacular language he's going to speak in our context typically english um, that means that the people in that church generally speaking uh in order to actually have a sort of spiritual fellowship will have to speak English in that, in the event of worship. And, uh, and this is often why um, you had uh, even in like the 16th century, when, when there was persecution in England, English Protestants would flee to Europe and they go to German speaking places or French speaking places, but they don't generally speaking, don't speak the other languages. So they'd form their own churches. It'd be called stranger churches. And they'd be actually called strangers in a way because they don't speak the same language. And so they'd actually have a different, different church. Uh, and uh, over time, they could integrate if they spoke the same language. But the, the point being, though, is that there, when there are dissimilarities on important matters, there is probably a good reason. There is a good reason to divide between different churches simply because how do you minister to people and you can't speak their language? Um, so in that sense, there is a, way, a sense, there is a sense in which just because another guy is a Christian, is not actually good enough to say we can worship together in the same building because worship involves vernacular language. So, uh, but, that, but that's not to say that someone who's Asian and a white guy can't worship in the same, same building because they speak the same language and they can also have fellowship and encourage one another because they understand each other culturally. They can understand what a guy is struggling in his, in his job is to understand how jobs work in our society as opposed to other places. Um, so we can understand other people's struggles because of, of cultural reasons. So I, I, uh, anyway, I'm kind of going on long here, but, uh, the, 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 the point is that, um, I'm not talking about like a, a racialist divide. It's, it's far more a matter of kind of on the ground similarity. Yeah. What you're talking about to me seems 
common sense. It's and it's more organic. You can't form. I can't get you a bullet point list to show you all the ways in which, let's say, um, uh, from my context, we have a Spanish translation at my church, right? And so the few people that take advantage of that who come, um, I I can see that there's a barrier though. They can't really talk with other people at the church who don't speak Spanish, so they're not going to be, um, forming relationships as easily. And yeah. there's actually another church nearby that's been just inundated with um, immigrants coming from, um, I think many of them illegal from, from South America and so forth. And I went to a church picnic recently that they held and it was just obvious. It, it's no one had to segregate anyone, right? No, no one came in and said, all right, you guys sit over here. You guys sit over here. It naturally happened though, that the people who could speak to each other tended to sit with each other and so it was almost like you had two churches and the um, pastor was trying to hold these these groups together through uh, translating the sermon live. So he would speak in English, then speak in Spanish. Right. And um, and I can't like I guess what the, the, one of the things that you're saying, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is that this is one example, but there's probably like a lot of other examples. Like I couldn't give you a bullet point list, but there's a lot of cultural things that people share in common who have grown up with the same experiences that uh, like, like even social things, you know, like what's appropriate in, in social situations that are, can, can be causes for offense or misunderstanding or uh, they, they just, they're barriers to fellowship with, and I don't mean Christian fellowship. I mean what you meant by civil fellowship with other people. And so they may choose to, to, to be in a context with people that are more like them for that reason. And, and that's naturally just how the world works, no matter where you go. It's not like a, it's not yeah. what you just said about like, which is more abstract, like taking a DNA test to see if I can you know, get along yeah. with this person. And, and part of my point is that this is, there's nothing wrong with this. I think that in, right, in, right. in, the, in the modern West, we have these like these deep anxieties uh, about this cultural separation that somehow if, they are over there and we are over here. We have to feel as if we're not being hospitable. We're not being welcome. We're, we're not being Christian enough, which usually, but usually they who group together aren't actually thinking that <laughs> they are just, they, they just naturally are drawn to similarity and they, they go over there. I mean, you, you, you speak to people who grew up in rough urban and urban neighborhoods. I just, I was just at the cigar bar actually of all places. And I was talking to this guy who was in his 50s and he's about to retire from a school district. He was a teacher and then a football coach and a counselor in school. And he was talking about uh, how he would be, how he would counsel these, these young guys who could join, easily join gangs at family life that was messed up. And as I was talking to him, I was thinking I, for several reasons, but one just culturally would not know how to communicate with these young guys in an effective way to get them not to join the game, to get them not to kind of be delinquents or whatever. But this guy does like this guy knows how, because he's, he was raised in that culture. He knows what to say, what to do. And he was the appropriate guy for the job. And so I can understand then in a church context, why he, why him and like his, his culture would want to form a church if the church is interested in ministering to people in this kind of, you know, not, not only in things kind of eternal, but also in earthly things like not going to jail or, or, um, or trying to be successful in your life in some way. 
um, that it would be make sense that they would actually meet together because they understand each other, common struggles, common just this mutual understanding of what they need to do and overcome. Uh, and I, th I think the same thing could be true of a lot of Asian churches that are deeply embedded in kind of an old age, like an Asian culture. Not not one, not like Asians who have been you know been in the United States for a long time, kind of you know. Um, sure. Similarly, yeah. I can understand why there'd be Korean Presbyterian churches, Chinese, because they have unique not only a unique language, but unique culture, unique expectations amongst each other. And if church is supposed to serve this, it's, it's supposed to serve all of life. Like if we're not just confined church to just eternal, eternal things, but actually real tangible, like, um, uh, like earthly things, then, then, then the churches and the people there need to know how to do that. They need to have a common cultural understanding and expectations for that to happen. And so that's really all I was, I mean, that, that's actually big. Uh, it's, I guess, controversial, but that's all I was uh, trying, trying to say. And part of the thing is I think people should just relax and I, that, that like we should critique our own like anxieties for these things that it's okay to be different. It's okay that they're different. It's okay that you're different than them. But, uh, but what I did push back against explicitly was, okay, when I say us and them, I'm not saying we white people, those black people, we white people, those Asian people. I explicitly don't say that. And that's because it doesn't fit with your own experience. Again, I, I, you, you've had friends with, who are Asians or Hispanics um, or blacks that are exact, that are culturally very similar to you, if not the same. And so to say us first then because I'm white and he's Asian doesn't make any sense actually on the ground in life. It's, 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 a, it's throwing out this abstract principle uh, of like a racial division that doesn't make any sense as life actually works. So, um, so that's what I'm arguing. I think if DeYoung just kind of uh, maintained my own definition of ethnicity, he wouldn't have basically suggested I'm well, white, white that may be true, but segregation. I want to uh, challenge. Well, I don't I don't know if that's the core thing. Um, maybe maybe it is. But one of the things he said, and I sense this throughout a bunch of the reviews I read where they were critiquing you is he says it clearly. If we cannot accept the creedal nation concept, that to me is key. Like because you reject that, then, well, what's the only other option? I guess it's white supremacy. That seems to be the assumption a lot of these guys have, and it makes them uncomfortable. As soon as you re reject Proposition Nation, then they're like, well, what is it then? Is it Nazi Germany? I guess that's the only other thing if we don't have the Proposition Nation. And I'd like to hear you talk about that a little bit. If, yeah, if I, I think Americans just kind of lack the imagination because of their experience uh, to, to, to uh, understand how um, I guess a non-credal nation. I, I, I don't. I don't think the division is between credal and non-credal, because I think in a, a Christian nation, you know, the, the the statement "Jesus is Lord" is an essential element of a Christian nation. But my only my point is that that's not it. That's not enough for actual civil fellowship. So I mean, if you, I, it, it seems obvious to me that if we, if let's say we just randomly selected a bunch of true Christians from around the world, put them in one location and said, all right, make it work. You're going to have a Christian nation, Christian society. It would just be utter chaos and it would be ridiculous. But if you went to Idaho and, and plucked out a bunch of random people who live in Idaho, 
not much talking Moscow, Idaho, but it, everywhere in Idaho, <laughs> you, you pulled out a bunch of true Christians and put them in one space. There'd be some conflict like there always is, but you'd probably, probably be able to make it work. Um, why? They speak the same language. They're all from the same state, you know, so there's all sorts of cultural similarities of those people. So, um, but, the, and they would all kind of uh, affirm Jesus is Lord, but the reason why it would work as a civil community, as a civil fellowship, is because they hold these things, these very particular things in common with each other. And so they can, they can get along, they can understand each other. Uh, and, and I, I think that, that, that is just, uh, the, that, that's how nations work. And I make arguments for that in the book. And I also, I think that oftentimes the creeds that we assert, they're, they're asserted as universal. So obviously Jesus is Lord is a universally true statement. It's true for every person, no matter what, um, and the opposite is false for, for everyone. Um, but, but, the, but there's, there's things like the, the West emphasis on equality, the West emphasis on a certain conception of liberty, especially in the modern West. Uh, some of the judicial norms that we have that have developed over time from the Magna Carta through the English Bill of Rights, through our own Bill of Rights, all these, and then the, and then the constitutional developments that have arisen from that within the United States, all these things are development within a certain people group, within a certain kind of nation state, if you want to say. And uh, we've been kind of raised into them and to have respect for them and for the people who, I mean, we may not respect the Warren Court and other 20th century developments, but we do respect the 17th, 18th and 19th century, uh, especially with regards to religious liberty. Often um, we, we, we respect these as developments of us, of our country and explain who we are today. Uh, and, but those are usually very particular things. And even if they are like, even if it's true, that like, uh, you know, take like uh, that double jeopardy. It's not fair to like, you know, the principle of double jeopardy, where if you're tried for a crime and you're acquitted, you can't be tried for that same crime right. again. That, that's a development within the legal system that's that's expressed within um, the, the bill. It's, it's in the Bill of Rights. Yeah, it's, it's expressed in the Bill of Rights. And uh, but that's an actual development of the Western tradition uh, into the, this principle that's codified. And even, even if we want to say that's a universal true thing that ought to be true in all places that double jeopardy is, is, is wrong, it's still a particular development of the West, right? And so we've adopted it and, and, uh, and it's ours. Uh, so the, the, the point being is that, that even like these things we think are universal matters of justice are still these things that, that we as Westerners have developed and adopted ourselves in a very particular way. And, uh, uh, so anyway, I mean, the, 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 the creedal concept, you can have a creed, but I think we should also recognize that the creed is most often affirmed by people who are actually from the place that right. holds, holds the creed. Yeah. And there's a million things like that. You just gave one example, but you could talk about why is 18 when we can now vote or 16 when we can drive or how can we pursue marriage through dating and instead of arranged marriages. And I mean, all these things we take for yeah. granted, some groups that come over here. Uh, to the United States and even Christians who form churches, they don't uh, subscribe to all of that. And so um, it's uh, anyways, it's a fascinating topic. And I, I just find it sad that so many of the more the reviewers who are in the more elite, I guess, upper echelons, I should say, are want to 
focus on this so much that that you're that they want to imply that you're sort of adjacent to white supremacists or Nazis or something along those lines. Um, one more thing from Kevin DeYoung, and then maybe let's move on to another because uh, because this is, I think, Kevin DeYoung's thesis. It's in the title. He says, perhaps, um, or sorry, he says, if critical race theory teaches that America has failed, that the existing order is irredeemable, that Western liberalism was a mistake from the beginning, that the current system is rigged against our tribe, and that we ought to make ethnic consciousness more important, it seems to me that Wolf's project is the right-wing version of these same impulses. So he's saying you're woke, but you're right-wing woke. What do you make of these parallels that he brings up? Uh, well, how do you even, how do you approach this? Um, that again, if he's connecting critical race theory, he's using race again, uh, which, which is again, a conflation of what I actually said about ethnicity. Um, do I think that Western liberalism was a mistake from the beginning? Well, okay. What, what beginning are we talking about? Are we talking about post-World War II liberalism? Then yeah, it was a mistake. <laughs> um, before that, if we're talking about the more classical conception of the 17th century, well, I, you know, I wouldn't really say that. And in fact, in my in my chapters on on, on America and the founding, the, the one chapter I have, if you want to say that America is a sort of liberal establishment or, uh, or founding, then if, if that's what you want to call that, then I don't think it was a mistake. Because in fact, I'm in part calling us to return in part, not entirely, to uh, sort of um, some of the founding principles. So... Uh, now, is our current system rigged against our tribe? Uh, is he is he denying that there's a sort of negative sentiment towards white males in our country? Is he denying that? Like, so is he saying that's not true? That that, that it's not true that there is well, a sort of yeah. that there are discriminatory practices within corporations, within schools, and that there's an active hostility towards the white male? Is he denying that that's the case? Um, because that would be uh, pretty, I think, um, I think it's disputable. Uh, and, and a lot of evidence can be presented that that, in fact, is, is the case. Uh, and, but, uh, but the thing is, what's, what's strange, though, is that I, I only mention that uh, at the, in, in the epilogue when I, I bring up this idea of the white male. But in terms of ethnic consciousness, I actually say that ethnic consciousness is not a racialist uh, principle. I, I do think there should be a sort of revival of a, a type of ethnic consciousness, by which I mean not racial consciousness, but a consciousness that we as Americans are a people um, and we ought to be conscious of that and we ought to have solidarity around that and we ought to affirm that and seek our own good. And what this means is rejecting some of the universal notions that lead us to go bomb other countries and spend resources and lives trying to recreate a democracy in other countries. So that's yeah, I, I think we should look inward and and try to uh, have a sort of ethnic solidarity around being an American. And to say this is un-American is actually kind of strange. To say that there is no desire to have a sort of ethnogenesis to become ethnic conscious as Americans. Um, one of the things that held America together uh, initially, right when uh, the United States was founded, was George Washington. He he was a sort of he was a, a sort of prince to use some of my language, that held the United States together because everyone loved George Washington. And I think you can read in his farewell address this idea that I'm retiring finally. He didn't want to become president. He's like, I want to retire, but I'll, he didn't want to serve a second term. 
but he's like, I'm done. Okay. You know, uh, and, and so in his farewell address, he says that, look, we need to not, we need to stop having these very highly local attachments by which he meant kind of this identification with the state, which he didn't say that you shouldn't have any identification with your kind of state, but he said that we should have this, this sense of being Americans, that we have this common project. And he says, we have a similar language, we have a similar religion, we have created a common struggle. And he's essentially saying that I'm leaving, I'm not gonna hold things together. You have to think of yourselves as a people and that's how we're going to proceed forward. And so I think that the idea, the very idea that we ought to have an ethnic consciousness as I define it is precisely very American. And it, it, it describes exactly what happened um, in the early kind of, and you say the early Republic, it was the appeal of George Washington and others, not only George Washington, but even earlier with John Jay and Federalist II, that we would identify as one people, not as Virginians, not as mass, you know, Connecticut or whatever it is that, uh, um, but of course not extinguishing the identification, you know, so multi layers of identification, but having that uh, more general one, which would be American. And so that's really all I'm saying is that that's why we ought to, in America, stop importing thousands and thousands of people who are very different than us so that we can sort out as Americans who we are as, as a people. And you can't do that when you're constantly injecting foreign people who don't speak the language, who have no actual common interest in the place of the land besides maybe economic opportunities, um, who have not born here, who are not born here and have that, that sort of native connection to the place. Uh, and that's why, you know, and uh, so I, that's why I was critical of immigration as well. But yeah, to say that it's like, I mean, I, I mean, in terms of like critical, like critical theory, uh, I, I obviously disagree with a lot of the conclusions of critical race theory, but it, it does seem to me that there are, that there are um, systems in place and being in place that are going to be used to actively discriminate against not only not only white men but just males in general and uh and so i think that the i do think that the the um the impulse for conservatives to outright reject anything that would be that would look like a critical theory i think is is a a bad move because we're literally in if we are in the midst of, if, if we're in the middle of liberal totalitarianism right now, that there is a sort of total, like a totalitarianism that has this crushing liberal, secular liberal um, uh, uh, um, like, like the elements of that pervade all of, all of our life, then that ought to be critiqued. It, it would be something that we actually would not see well. It would be something that we have to think and reflect on and uncover and disclose uh, through a sort of method that may not, um, yeah, so that, that would be called a sort of critical theory. So I, I, I do think there can be a kind of right-wing critical theory, and I think that should develop a little more. Uh, but in saying that, that doesn't mean I, I'm, I'm buying into everything they conclude or even their methods themselves. But uh, so... Um, well, there, there is a Yeah, I, I, I just think it would right. be very dangerous. It would be very dangerous for us to not have a certain method of approaching questions that is just very surface level and not trying to uncover the ways kind of these powers work. So like, I mean, in the epilogue, I talk about, I talk about gynocracy, which people kind of laugh at and all that. 
but it's this idea that like there is a sort of feminine dominance in the workplace that is that is uh, operates subtly uh, th through kind of gendered relations and but it's also concealed behind a sort of liberal equality you know like oh we're all equals but then the actual rhetoric rhetoric employed in gender relations will actually then uh, is actually is in incredibly gendered. And so what I'm saying is that instead of seeing, oh, we're all equal in the workplace, and at, look at that, that very surface level element of it, that we had to see, no, there's actually subtle ways in which kind of more of kind of a feminine centric power actually is wielded to uh, suppress uh, masculinity or, or men in the workplace. And so I think that that's a sort of method that if we just say, oh, we're all equal and just the surface, we're actually going to miss the dynamics that are actually in that, that play in these various spheres of life. I mean, we, we talked about how like, like the idea that the church is feminine, like that, that there's a feminine aspect to the church. You know, if you, I, I'm sure you've heard this before that people oh, critique yeah. like that the church is not just feminist as in there's a woman preacher. You know, the, the, the idea that a church can be feminine uh, can actually also be complementary. We know these these people who are say they're complementarian, but then we also know that the power is actually in the hands of the non-pastor who's the women, right? What are we doing when we say that? We're, that is a kind of critical theory. We're saying that the surface is actually an illusion, but what's actually happening underneath, the more subtleties is actually an exercise of feminine power over masculine power, whatever. So anyway, that, going on and on, but, that, but that's like the, that's why I think that we should not wholesale reject uh, kind of the, the kind of the critical approach of uncovering the actual dynamics. Yeah. Well, I mean, people have always critiqued their leaders. That's <laughs> as old as, you know, the first government. So, um, you know, I remember James Lindsay a few years ago told me it was in 2020 that he said, if you say taxation is theft, he said, you could call that critical state theory that libertarians are engaged in this. And so, you know, this notion of being critical um, is we were critical of everything uh, as humans. But um, I think on a pop level, I've heard this uh, argument that Kevin DeYoung's bringing up because what they're saying is that you're just flipping the script. You're saying, we're saying that black people are oppressed. Well, you're saying it's actually white males that are oppressed. And so you are you could just take all the um, placeholders and move them and we would have your philosophy, right? Which, and, and that's because I have studied a little more on especially critical race theory. Um, you know, that's where I think there are some huge key differences that maybe Kevin DeYoung's overlooking, for example, and, and we'll get to this in a moment because Neil Shenby tries to critique you on this, but you want things to conf conform to a natural order. Whereas critical theory in, in the proper sense, the academic sense, like a Frankfurt school, that doesn't seem to be something they're tethered to. They're not looking to match a natural order. In fact, they'll overturn the natural order. This is the tool they're using to do it, right? So they, they start off with that assumption uh, that we don't want that. We want this egalitarian order that we're going to produce and by means of critical theory. And then, of course, Im implementing postmodern uh, standpoint theory and um, just other things that are way out of step with, I think, what you're saying. But that's the main one in my mind. And um, and maybe we can just jump there right now because I had a question uh, based on Neil Shenby's review. Um, I won't even read his quote because people can go read it if they want. I'll just ask you the question that, that came to my mind as I was reading his review. 
is something good of itself simply because it's natural. And if natural affections conflict, how do we choose which one to entertain? Yeah, so, I mean, there's different ways you can take the the term natural. So you can think of what, what is natural to us with regard to what is good for us. And that, that's how I define it um, within, uh, within the book. So if Adam, who is in a state of integrity, uh, is if he followed the principles of his of his nature as created, then he would he would uh, be be righteous. He would not have fallen. Um, and so the that's that's what I meant by nature. That is also the use of the word as we are by nature sinful, which would which is a is is in, in a sense an improper use of nature. Is improper doesn't mean bad or wrong, but it just means that it's referring to sort of these vicious habits that we have that are inclined. Um, because of sin. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, th- so that, that's, that, that's what I mean. And, and the, yes, state the question again. Well, I think, it, I think that that grounds like the principle, but what was the more? Yeah. So, well, Shinvi says things, he asked questions like, well, you know, because Wolf says it's good to desire to live in one's own tribe is, is an American Christian man wrong to pursue a, a godly Sudanese woman as a spouse? And so I'm just out because the assumption he's making is you're saying there's these rigid, natural um, order habits or, or, you know, lanes we should run in. And if we get outside that we're outside of God's will. And so he's saying you're absolutizing this. Um, What about, you know, think what about exceptions, I I suppose, to this? And what about sinful desires that you might have? Aren't those natural, too? And so I'm wondering if he's just using a different natural in a different sense than the way you're using it. Yeah, I mean, I'm uh, I'm I'm also talking about sort of collective duties as well. It's not just uh, it's it's that we we are drawn to to similar things. And and but that's but we're drawn to those similar to, to similar people because by nature, because being drawn to similar people uh, enables you to live well. And that's be- and, and not only you, but also you with others. So I'm very clear that I'm not, I don't have this very individualist kind of conception where we can all be isolated, isolated individuals. And, but we actually need each other to, to live well. And so our being drawn to similarity is a necessary element of human society so that we can uh you know be, being drawn like we talked earlier to someone who speaks the same language the reason for that is it's natural to us because that's necessary for a community to live well now does that admit of uh times where you you could say marry someone who is actually different than you uh for the society so that that is actually possible and, and there's there's nothing inherently sinful um about about doing that that if you are, I mean, the, the West has, um, in fact, one, one of the unique things about the West is that uh, we have been fascinated uh, with non-Western cultures. It's one of, it's one of those, and this is what Roger Scruton has talked about, is that we, we, have, uh, we have been fascinated by, in a way, the other. We've been fascinated by what is dissimilar to us. And that's, it, that, that's his way of saying the West is great in a sense. So there's nothing wrong with that having this uh, um, appreciation, love, and even kind of combining with what's dissimilar. But, uh, but my, my, my point is that we're drawn by nature to that because it's for a good collectively. Now, that, again, we, we could, 
we could then say you guys are different and you can be incorporated through hospitality among us uh, and you're dissimilar um, and there's nothing wrong with that. So I'm not absolutizing that uh, such that like we can't ever relate or combine in some sense with people who are dissimilar. Uh, I'm just saying by, by nature as collective social beings, it is something we are, are drawn to, I guess, in aggregate. And it's, it's good. It's good at a collective level. It's good that individuals are drawn to similarity. But that doesn't mean that it, it, you, you couldn't have. So, but that doesn't mean it's absolutized as in you ought to in every single case. Uh, it means that you, you, are, you ought to, as a collective duty, seek for the, the ethnic kind of pres preservation of your people, uh, which could include assimilation of people who are dissimilar. Okay, so I mean, this is like, it gets complicated because it's like individual actions versus kind of a collective duty. Um, but I, I, but essentially what I'm saying is that it's, it's, I'm relativizing or it's a relative duty to uh, seek the sort of solidarity of your, of your people. So it's not an absolutized thing. And this at, at individual, but anyway. Yeah, so I don't, I don't know. some sense. You, well, to me, it's... Uh just common sense in, in a way, I guess I keep I overuse yeah. that term, I suppose, but we, you can look at patterns of people, like for instance, even transportation, when you, is it um, natural to drive to work if given, you know, that arrangement? Uh, yeah, most people do. Um, is there someone who is, likes to be physically fit and ride their bicycle? Sure. But that's, you know, it's not, it's not like it's wrong to do what's outside of the norm or the, yeah convenient so I, I think that's kind of similar to what you're saying that there's um th there's these general patterns and that these aren't these aren't mistakes and these aren't um the product of chance that there's something wired within us collectively to to, to do you know pursue things a certain way and um, well that's actually a, a good example because a good analogy to what i'm getting at so we when we when we drive to work, we can accommodate that those one or two people who like to ride their bike. I mean, it's a little, you know, you're driving in the car, it's a little annoying. You just go around and sometimes you don't want to hit them. They're a hazard on the road, you know? Thanks. Yeah, right? but, but, <laughs> I mean, they are. So, um, uh, so we, but we, we as drivers can accommodate them, can accommodate these, these, uh, these bikers. Um, but if, if suddenly half the people decided to ride their bike to work, it would be this hazard that would might require a law to say no, you can't ride your bike on that road, because then there would be all these cars and all these all these bikes, and then and people eventually are going to get hit um, and it would be unsafe. So that that's just an example of where you can accommodate like the the those who kind of diverge from this norm with graciousness and and even say hey, there's variety, you know, there's some variety here. But the moment you kind of inject a, like a, a significant difference into the system, it creates actually uh, all sorts of problems. And so I think, in, in so you can, so in that sense, there's like this, I don't know, people have a duty to drive or whatever, but th th there's there's some duty there in that, in that case to uh, arrange yourselves so that everyone can kind of accomplish what they're up to. Let's let's go. Let's jump to Andrew Walker, if that's all right. His uh, critique of your book, his um, his was an outlier. It was different than a lot of the other ones. And I'll just read for you a quote from him. This is a paragraph. He says, Wolf's argument goes something like this. Government has a duty to promote true religion, 
Christianity is true religion, therefore government has a duty to promote Christianity. The internal logic of this syllogism works. It's rational, but that's different from making an exegetical case for the argument or demonstrating that it fits with scripture's own covenantal developments. This again is what makes this book as frustrating as it is creative. As a matter of pure argumentation, it's not hard to make logical syllogisms. For example, four-legged animals can run in the Kentucky Derby. Unicorns have four legs. Unicorns can run in the Kentucky Derby. The problem is, while this argument is valid, unicorns do not exist. Go back to the original syllogism. Wolf may assert that the government has the duty to promote true religion, but he never argues that point from the Bible from any clear command. It's just assumed. So um, now this actually is similar to statements others have made. So maybe you can respond to both where they say that you're just assuming theology and you're not actually doing the hard exegetical work. But Walker's making the extra step of saying, actually, you're just outside the Bible completely here and you're just relying totally on logic and not the Bible. So is that true? <laughs> well, first of all, it's not, not it's not assumed. It's just assumed uh, is so it, he says he never argues that point from the Bible from any clear command. And that's uh, that's actually a true statement. So I don't. Um, that argument would be uh, that the government is a duty to promote true religion, and uh, that's because I, that that premise, which is a major premise, I argue, is actually true by nature. Uh, it's it's uh, true by nature. So I argue with it. I argue for that from from reason. And uh, what's frustrating about Walker's comment here, when he is that he says it's almost as if he didn't read like the several pages where I make the argument. And he says, just assumed. Well, I get to, well, it's not assumed. I, I explicitly, I think it's like nine different arguments in the book for that premise that government should promote true religion. And it's arguing uh, essentially from, from reason or at least from premises that Christians, I think, ought to accept. And but whether they, whether the sound or not, I mean, it's just, it's just false to say that I assumed. Mm -hmm. Um and to say that I'm not biblical enough, this is a this is a response to the book that I think is a really bad response. It's a poor, it's a very um, kind of in fact kind of silly, but it also has a very popular appeal to it. So okay, Wolf's making arguing for Christian nationalism, but he doesn't quote scripture enough. He doesn't exegete scripture. In fact, he says he's not going to exegete scripture, um, and I, I do maybe two or three times in the book. And to to the average person, that sounds like crazy. Well, if you're going to write a Christian political theory, you have to um, appeal to scripture. Uh, and uh, but it's actually not not a very good response uh, to the book. It's not a good reason to reject the book because I explicitly say what I'm up to. And that is I'm assuming the doctrinal formulations of the Reformed tradition and specifically in the early centuries, the first three centuries after the Reformation, 15, 16, 17, excuse me, 16, 17, 18. And uh I'm assuming these formulations and I explicitly say who's, you know, uh, you know, who, who argued them. And if you want to see the exegesis, then you can go uh, to, to those books and check and see what Turton said or Calvin said, or Vermeule said, I mean, you can all look it up for yourself. Um, but what I wanted, I wanted a precise and developed theological system that's articulated in a coherent and systematic way uh, as the framework from which to do Christian politics, to do a Christian political theory. Um, and so I, I assumed it. Uh, it's, it would be like, people, you know, uh, imagine if I were to write a book that was an, uh, 
Trinitarian Christian politics. Instead of Reformed, I was somehow going to apply the Trinity to Christian politics. Would I have to then write a thousand-page book defending the doctrine of the Trinity as it as it's you know it's from Scripture and how it's articulated? Would I have to do that up front to write a hundred pages, no. or would it be enough for me to do ten pages or fifteen? So, part of the reason why I did that did this, and I just assumed things, is one I have respect for the theological discipline which means that it's not something that any guy with a PhD in political theory can just pick up and be a theologian. So I have respect for the discipline. And two, I have respect for the guys who codified the reform tradition up to the 17th century. And so uh, if I'm going to make a Christian reformed political theory, political thought, I'm going to assume reformed theology. So if you don't like, if you, if you don't affirm reformed theology, then as I say in the book, you may not agree with my conclusions. I mean, I say that straight up. Uh, but if you are reformed and you take seriously your tradition, well, then you have to take seriously the the um, the major positions in that tradition, and those are the positions I assume. And the positions that I uh, that are not the majority but are disputed in the tradition, uh, like seriously disputed, I argue for them. So, like uh, I make an argument that that civil government would exist in the prelapsarian or pre-fall state, like in, in the state of integrity, had Adam not fallen, there would have been. Uh, civil government or civil subjection, however you want to call it. Now that's that's rejected by people like uh, like Luther. Martin Luther rejected that. Um, Augustine rejected that, as I understand, and then some other people did as well. Um, but other people did affirm it. So people like Aquinas affirmed it, and uh, some Protestants others. So it, there's a dispute over it. So instead of just citing Aquinas, which I do cite Aquinas, but instead of just citing Aquinas and saying, "Oh, that's I'm going to assume it." No, I actually make arguments for it. I have like maybe 15 pages or maybe fewer than that um, arguing for that conclusion. And um, so, yeah. Uh, and, and the other thing too is that I, I, I say that, that that political theory, even Christian political theory, the foundation of it are, uh, the foundation is our uh, uh, natural principles. So natural principles underlie our Christian political theory. And grace, the truths of grace are then applied. So like when I say government has a duty to promote true religion, that statement I say is a naturally true statement. That was true prior to the, prior to the fall. It's true after the fall. Um, it's true after grace. And how do you apply that? Well, you apply that by saying what is true religion, which is Christianity's true religion, which that is the truth of grace that we all affirm. Uh, but again, the foundation was that natural principle. And, if, and, and natural principles are, are the sort of things we can, we can know and argue from uh, by reason, and they can be argued through philosophically um, and also scripturally, but I chose to do the, the philosophy side. So uh, I don't know if that's going to satisfy everyone, but, uh, but whatever, um, that's, that, that's what I did. And uh, yeah, there, so, I mean, I don't know exactly where Andrew Walker's coming from with this, um, but there's the word that came to my mind as I was reading it was uh, biblicism. Like, I don't know if he is a biblicist or if he, um, you know. Uh, yeah. No, thinks... but he's not, though. He's all about natural law. So that's why this thing. Oh, see, again, you've read more than I have then. But yeah, he's all about He's like a Protestant natural law guy. Oh, that's and interesting. That, that, OK, that's why I was actually really surprised that he went there. Um, because yeah. because he. As, as a natural law guy, he should know that there 
that you can have conclusions from reason and conclusions from faith. And if you do scriptural argumentation, that, that the, like sound reason, so sound reason and sound exegesis on the same question would lead to the same answer because reason is from God, faith is from God. Right. And you can't have these two instruments of God lead to opposite or con- contradictory conclusions. That doesn't make any sense. So somehow God gave us ability to reason, make a conclusion with using that reason soundly, somehow contradicts things of faith. Right. That doesn't make any sense. So what so what Walker could have done, it could have said, well, from scripture, Wolf's it uh, proper scriptural exegesis contradicts Wolf's conclusion of reason. Okay. And so then therefore Wolf's conclusion is wrong. But then I mean, you can, I guess you can stop there if you want, but then if you want to actually have a complete critique, you then say, okay, something went wrong in Wolf's reasoning. It's not that reason itself leads to falsity. It's that, it's that bad reason leads to falsity. Right. And so let's go figure out where Wolf went wrong. But, but, but he says, oh, it was just assumed, which is actually false when I make nine arguments for the conclusion that he's saying, I'm assuming. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's sort of I think there's a line he says it was more logical than biblical or something, which I think just caused a lot of people to scratch their heads and be like, well, what? Yeah. <laughs> shouldn't it be? Shouldn't they dovetail? Shouldn't they be complimentary? Um, so, no, that's a that's a good response. And um, I think that's where Shenvi also kind of one of the places, at least he went off the tracks a little bit was uh, on these natural relationships is kind of assuming that there can be this conflict that you could, because sin is a natural thing, but that's not what you're saying. You're not saying um, you're saying within the bounds of God's established order, um, you know, with good ends in mind and that kind of thing. You're not saying that any urge you have could be a disordered urge is natural. So. Yeah. Well, and let me just say that the, What's operating here in my in my work here is that the law of God or the what God says we ought to do is is something that is actually suitable for who and what we are. So it's not an arbitrary or as theologians say, adventitious set of commands. Do this, don't do that. As if we're just a, a, a you know pack of meat and uh, and that's it and then god just says do this and it's arbitrary in relation to our who what we are but actually what god says you ought to do is, is suitable for our very nature it's suitable for our, our impulses it's suitable for our desires it's suitable to our reason it's suitable to our um our all of our faculties now sin of course corrupts those faculties uh and so we can actually do what we ought not to do um but but the, the idea here, though, is that when we are, as human beings, acting properly humanly or acting, you know, proper to what we are, we're actually, you know, when we have impulses that are, that are actually, that arise fundamentally from what we are as created, those impulses and, and inclinations and instincts uh, will lead to what is actually for our good. Uh, it, it will lead to us to do what is right, and to do what is right is always for our good. Uh, and, and so, uh, yeah, I think I, I, I get, I get the sense that some people that they want to think of like Christian ethics as, as nothing but the set of like arbitrary commands that we follow when actually, whenever we're obeying God, we're actually obeying in a way our own nature as created. We're obeying who and what we ought to be. We're being human. Um, we're exercising 
the very the very faculties that God gave us. This is one get... of my critiques of theonomy too, by the way. But that's uh, <laughs> that's for another episode. Oh, that, that's another episode. So there are two um, reviewers I want to get to uh, that I read, and I'll I think we're going to save the best for last. So we'll get to Peter Lightheart at the end because <clears throat> he makes some some very serious charges. But Mark David Hall, who I've had on this podcast and um, respect uh, much of the work he's done, he says that Wolf has written a provocative book, but it is one whose arguments will appeal only to a handful of idiosyncratic patriarchal Calvinists who reject the American founding and desire to return to church state relations as they existed in the 16th and 17th centuries. So. Are you a patriarchal Calvinist who rejects the American founding? Is that what you are? And then have you seen other, is the appeal broader than who he says are, are going to want to read it? Uh, well, if that makes sense. I respond to that. No, it, yeah, it does. I think that what, what Mark has failed, which is not an unreasonable failure, even though I think I'm pretty clear, he is taking... He, he has failed to distinguish between the principles that I lay out and the possibilities of those principles uh, and the, 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 prudent, the prudential a- application of those principles. So it is true that I say that it's possible that you can, you can um, in, in, in a sense, that it's possible, according to the principles, to actually execute heretics. Mm-hmm. And uh, I appeal, I, I basically say that that's what everyone believed in the 16th century. Well, not everyone, but that's what a lot of people believed. But then I say, you know, but even though it's possible, according to the principle, that may not always be the most prudent. And, and so what I'm doing, though, is, I'm, you know, again, I'm distinguishing principle, possibility, and what's prudent for the moment. So obviously, principles can allow us to do all sorts of things, uh, but that doesn't mean it's wise. And so if you, uh, if you understand that framework, when you apply what I'm saying uh, and you apply it to the American founding, then you can see that, well, you can apply those principles differently. And part of my, my the, the last chapter, you know, prior to the epilogue is precisely me showing that, which is saying like er, early on, there was division between the Congregationalists and the Baptists. There was tension between them. And uh, but then it culminated in 1717 or something when Cotton Mather uh, gave an ordination sermon for a Baptist in a Baptist church. And so now there's a sort of togetherness, a recognition of mutual um, solidarity in Christ. And that culminated, I, I you know, argue to the, to the founding where the idea was it was, a, it was a, an expansion of Protestant principles where we can affirm that you're Christian, you're Christian, you're Christian. It's not a, ma- a matter of alignment to an institution. And, uh, and so that went from there. So basically the, the idea of religious liberty in the, in, in the American founding era was still very Protestant. It was not a, a uh, uh, it did not violate the principles of Protestantism, even classical Protestantism, where they even execute heretics, but it was actually an application given experience and prudence uh, on what's proper given religious diversity. And so that, I mean, that, so that's the, uh, and that, so that's a, my, the argument was you can disagree with it, but the argument was that the same principles were applied to the founding era, and but they were applied in opposite ways uh, given the experience and the circumstances at, at the time. Uh, so gotcha. why why was there no why was there a First Amendment that said no religious establishment? 
Well, because you have the, the Congregationalists were in Massachusetts and Connecticut and the Anglicans were in Virginia and they're Roman Catholics in Maryland. Right, right, right. And so here we are coming together. So what, why would there be, say, you know, the no established at the federal level? Well, because there's diversity. What I, um, and, and, uh, and from the experience of the wars of religion and religious strife, that actually is counterproductive. So me fighting and wanting to go war, go to war with my with um, with because they're Anglican and because I'm congregationalist or I'm or I'm Presbyterian. The problem with that is it actually is self-destructive, and it, we can actually get along, especially in the American context. We can get along without bloodshed. We can actually just learn to let live and actually be uh, recognize each other as brothers in Christ. Right. And uh, so, but again, I think that the same principles. Of Protestantism, just experience circumstances and being good Americans. So, anyway, so uh, I, maybe that answers the question. I'll just leave it at that. Um, so I guess the thing is, if yeah, if you if you take the entire work as I argue, um, and, and as I argue, clear, I think clearly, then it should appeal to Americans. It should appeal to patriarchal Calvinists who like idiosyncratic things but also uh, see that it's consistent with the church-state relations that occur in the 1780s and, and uh, yeah. decades that followed. You know, and I don't know why he wrote that exactly. Uh, my, um, what I was wondering is whether or not maybe the creedal nation thing was part of that as well, because I, I have a suspicion that Mark kind of leans that way a little bit. And, um, and I'm wondering if that, because uh, that does change the way that you look at america and what it is and um yeah. so but anyway that yeah you know, no, definitely I, I think that might be actually yeah. part of it yeah um yeah. and yep but, well let's uh, get to yeah. the big one <laughs> not and not the big one as far as notoriety i i doubt most of the people on this podcast know who this is but um this particular critique from peter lightheart was probably from, from all the ones i read the most aggressive and i want to read for you some quotes um Man, I don't even know where to start. Uh, there's there's two that I want to read here that, that are the main ones. OK, because he I mean, he talks about how basically you have a different Christ. And it, I mean, it gets but but the two main ones are this. He says for Wolf, the Voltgeist is a more powerful unifying force than the Hel Geist. I think I'm I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right uh, in the church. It's the Holy Spirit is what he's saying uh, as much as in the state. Even in this sacred realm, blood is, at the end of the day, thicker than water. Wolf does Christian political theory as if Pentecost never happened, as if the church didn't exist. Why don't we handle that one, and then we'll get to the next one, which is even more serious. So are you doing political theory as if Pentecost never happened and as if the church never existed? Well, no, I, and this is... <laughs> I, this is where theologians drive me crazy. Uh, because theologians are they're they're kind of in their little they're cloistered in their in their office writing reading the Bible and writing writing um, writing theology trying to interpret the, interpret the Bible, but uh, most of them have never actually built anything uh, that is actually um, out in the world. You are uh, very right uh, about uh, that. <laughs> that so, so they true. they have never cooperated in a project that required uh, not not all of them, but. Uh, the, and this goes back to what I said before. Yes, there is a church, and that church is the you know the universal Catholic Catholic Church, as in as the Protestants that understood it, which is the people who 
profess Christ all across the world. Of course, that exists, and they're from all tribes, tongues, and, and nations, and uh, that would, we can call that the church. And uh, it's not the Roman Catholic Church, but it's the church, as we call it, the Universal Catholic Church. But, uh, but as I said earlier, uh, I, do, I do political theory, uh, and he says, as, as if the church didn't exist. Well, again, I mean, I'd ask Lightheart to, uh, let's do a random plucking of different Christians from around the world, from every different part of the world, and put them into the same place right now. Uh, there'd be a hundred, you know, uh, dozens of different languages or hundreds, how many want, maybe, maybe thousands of different languages. And we'll all look at each other and maybe make some sign of the cross. And, and we'll all think, let's make this work. <laughs> um, and uh, Lightheart can lead it. Go for it. You, you make that civil project work. Um, but it's, it's absurd. But this is, I think that, I think that, that theologians, lead Christians into these pious sounding arguments, but because we, we don't actually think through what this means, like what, how this would work. We, we think that, that like, I, I have more, I have more similarities with someone who lives uh, like in some, like in Africa than I have with like my secular neighbor. Um, like I have more, and that sounds pious sounding. And there is a sense in which I have similarity with that person in Africa than I do with my secularist neighbor. But there are other similarities where I could go to my neighbor and say, Hey, I need you to help me put up, build this goat shed or something like that. You know, I, I, th there are ways that even though he would deny Christ that we can communicate to actually build this. Whereas a guy um, in a foreign country, I won't be able to speak his language and we actually can't cooperate as efficiently. So if you just think through stuff, like, like I think by what I'm saying to people is that uh, when it comes, when theologians talk about politics and it sounds very pious, we should actually think through what this means and how it would work. You know, it, and most of the time, these people, it's just simply wouldn't work. It wouldn't yeah. work at all. I mean, are we going to have, let's have a, um, well, so uh, the, the, is the church going to have? Let's have the fire department, and we're gonna we're gonna put people of different tribes, tongues, and nations in this in this fire department. They're all going to be firemen. <laughs> is that going to work, yeah. or do you need firemen to speak the same language, have the same kind of culture and routine? I mean, not perfect culture, but you know what I mean. Like this, it just doesn't make any sense. And and I do argue like there's a, there's a Volkswagen, there's a people, and the people in place, and they have a connection, and they can be Christian, and uh, and that that's good, um, but uh, but I mean, again, yeah, but Whitehart, I mean, Whitehart does this kind of stuff all the time. So he he says things that sound pious, but they're actually just absurd. Well, I I remember in seminary, I don't know how many times I heard in chapel or wherever uh, that you know, this formula given that well, the right is too right, the left is too left. You can't form a society on ethno nationalism. You can't form a society on. Um, uh, these gr aggrieved groups necessarily. So we, we have unity in the church. That would be like the end of the sermon is like, this is where we have unity. And I always thought like, well, that's dumb. <laughs> like, it's, it, it, I mean, it sounds really nice and everyone's like, oh yes. Like it makes us feel like we're the best. Like we see the on CNN or Fox news or any people arguing. And it's like, we transcend this. We're not part of this. We have unity. But at the end of the day, you know, ecclesiastical or, or church unity that you have um 
is also of a very different nature than the kind of unity that you would need for a, a political project. And um, anyway, that's my own soapbox, I suppose. But this kind of language is something that I, I see so constantly. It's I'm almost immune to it, but it doesn't seem to ever go away. <laughs> it's always there. Yeah. Um, it's very similar to something Kevin DeYoung said about you. He said that you prioritize the nation over the church. And, you know, it's, it, I immediately started getting those, uh, the memories of these things uh, that I, I've heard in seminary coming yeah. back to me. Um, well, yeah, I mean, that, that's the kind of thing that like they, they as Americans, they, they assume that, that uh, we can just kind of, that we can, we can kind of bring people over and, and, and assimilate kind of, in, which is, which is kind of true, but they, but, but they don't they don't realize that there is an assimilation into something. There's assimilation into, into a nation. Um, also, like you mentioned, DeYoung on that. I mean, they, they never define what they mean by like the church. Like, what what is the church? And, and this is why right, look, right, right. I, I separate it into there's instituted church, there's the visible, and then there's the invisible church. And having those distinctions really matters. Um, to ha- when we say the church and and the nation, so I mean, you you can have. Like the visible church, it manifests itself among different nations, and instituted churches are are in nations, um, and and then invisible in, for the invisible church, then you can have spiritual fellowship in a sense um, with with everyone regardless of, of nation in a kind of a deep, deeply spiritual sense. But whenever you talk about the church and the nation, like what do you mean by the church? I think this is Lightheart's problem as well. Uh, but um, well, generally, yeah. I think. Now, I don't want to speak for Lightheart or DeYoung on this. I just know in my experience, generally, Revelation 7 is somewhere invoked, or that's what they're thinking is, well, we we have unity of every tribe, tongue, nation here. There's neither Jew nor there's Greek. And so, um, and obviously, that's a picture of the universal church. And then they often will apply that to a local congregation. And they'll say, you know, we have this here. And um, speaking and, and, which language, <laughs> right, right. It's speaking, always English, right? Oh yeah. We only speak English here. You're only singing English hymns, right? Yeah. Songs uh, from a certain tradition, even if it's a tradition that's only 10 years old, that's CCM music or something. It's still part of a, a it's an offshoot from an English tradition. And so, so anyway, yeah. um, well, let's get to another quote from Peter Lightheart because this is in my mind when I, I had to go back and reread this cause I just thought he didn't say this, did he? He did. Wolf's dualism truncates and so distorts the gospel. What's new in the gospel, Wolf says, is the promise of eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, deliverance from the power of sin. Yes, true. But the gospel is fundamentally the announcement of the coming kingdom, the proclamation that the father has sent his son at his right hand. So this is, in my mind, the most serious charge. Because what he's saying is that you essentially you have a false gospel, because if you're distorting the gospel, if you're truncating the gospel, if you're which to me says he's saying you're leaving something out, you're um, you're dividing the gospel up and there's one part of it that you're not taking with you. If that's true, if you don't have the whole gospel, then what you have is is not the gospel, really. It it can't save people, I would think so. I mean, I have my own thoughts on this. I just really want to hear what you have to say, though. First, what? How do you respond to this charge? And, and I mean, did, I don't know if you feel the weight of that charge. Uh, I mean, this is 
kind of a lightheart being lighthearted and his his followers uh think this is great um this sort of thing uh if you if you open my book and you see what doctrinal positions i take you will see that i cite dozens of reformed theologians that i even cite people who are not reformed that is um, even counter or counter reformation catholic uh, roman catholics and uh, Aquinas and Augustine. I cite all these guys for my theological positions. So if um, it just simply is the case that if Lightheart wants to say that it's like a sort of another another gospel, then he's literally condemning the the theology of practically the, 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 the tradition he claims to be a part of, which he has done. I mean, he hasn't condemned exactly, but he does have this thing where he wants to always critique the own tradition. You know, he calls himself a reformed evangelical theologian, but he rejects central doctrines of the reformation um uh but the but anyway i mean just simply that's the case i think that if you think that lightheart is right about this and it distorts the gospel and even like you said has a sort of another, another gospel then you have to say that that's true of luther of calvin of uh, most of the post-reformation theologians like turretin maestrich um uh, Vermeule, Junius, I mean, I can just go through all the lists. And it goes all the way up into Charles Hodge into the 19th century um, and R.L. Dabney. You, you can do the same. You can just go on and on and on. Uh, you kind of get the impression that Whiteheart and his followers are extreme sectarians, um, which if you if you listen to some of their their rhetoric uh, and, and their very assured um, uh, kind of denunciation of these, quote, dualisms, then it's essentially right lightheartism uh, uh, versus the Christian tradition. And uh, not only, I mean, the, the idea of dualism is that the dualisms are just something that's been a key feature of, uh, of Christian theology prior to Augustine. I mean, this is not something just created uh, from mm -hmm. in, in, it's not something created from, uh, I don't know, uh, in like the 16th, 17th century when they started reading Aristotle. Uh, it was just something that was thoroughly within the Christian tradition. So I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know what else to say. It's one of those, again, it's one of those things where if you're, if, if you're ignorant, I mean, I just have to say directly, if you're ignorant of the Christian tradition, then you're going to find Lightheart's critique, uh, I guess, winsome <laughs> or, uh, or, uh, or solid. But if you do know the Christian tradition, you would just shake your head and say, well, that's sectarian. Like that's uh, remarkably arrogant for someone to say, to, and and then I mean really in some way it's like an honor to me it's like he's condemning me, but then in so doing I, I join every big name on your shelf um, in theology um, uh, in, in his critique as well. So I, I mean I, I don't know what else to say about it. It's it I get kind of I, I mean, I'm obviously kind of frustrated by this argument. The, the the big frustration I have with this sort of thing is that it plays up on people's ignorance. I mean, I just have to, I just have to say like, it, it's like this populist appeal to, to people who say, oh, Wolf just brings in these dualisms or Wolf doesn't have, uh, like he has a truncated gospel and like, oh yeah, that's gotta be true because this and that. Um, but it's just people who are ignorant of the fact that I'm literally assuming and, or at least I'm either assuming or taking the positions of people uh, like the most common, like extremely common positions in tradition. Anyway, I'll just uh, 
any follow-up does that does that answer the, yeah well no the question it, it, enough <laughs> yeah it's helpful you'll probably get some hate mail from his followers or maybe some of the other uh followers of some of these men i don't know but i think it's helpful and i wanted to give you this opportunity because you have been taking it from all sides just about i mean in those upper levels i would say everyone seems to want to denounce this book if they have a platform that's academic or I don't know if um, it, there's only a few, we'll say, in the upper echelons that are that publicly supportive of what you're doing. But yet you have so many who are in the pews that are hungry. That's the thing that strikes me is that they want someone to figure out what we're supposed to do or what ideally Christians, what a Christian state should look like, what we should be pursuing and they don't hear it from their pulpits. They, they don't get straight answers. And so you're kind of like, there's this vacuum that you filled. And it's like, you know, I, I guess what I'm struggling with a little, I was like thinking, do they want this vacuum filled with their stuff or do they just want it empty? Like there's nothing there. And that yeah. that's where the secular, like this principled pluralist idea where, where secularism kind of, uh, is part of the state that that we uh, it, it controls the state is that what they actually want and i'm starting to come to the conclusion more i'm not saying all these reviewers but with um the reason that you've had so much backlash is because perhaps people actually do want that the christians uh, in the upper echelons that that may be they're they're ingratiating yeah. themselves to a secular state perhaps or or at least there's I don't even know how to phrase this. You've probably thought about it more deeply than I have. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think there is, I said this on Twitter maybe, maybe a month ago or so, but the, I think there is like a, it, like you can say really big and bold things. You ever seen that? Like uh, there's videos of like two dogs that are barking at each other behind a fence and they open the fence and now they're all friends. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> so I, I, I think, I mean, that's a not perfect example, but I think there is something like that going on, not between Christians, but in the sense that Christians exist in liberalism and they have this big bold presence like we're going to do this for you know and take over and all that, that um but but they're not actually serious so much as they're just forming like a sort of identity within within liberalism like they, they they let us have these views and now you have this tribe but you're not actually going to like you know actually going to act to make that happen and if right. you did if you did end up having it somehow fall in your lap you wouldn't even know what to do with it. And you probably, uh, it, would, it would destroy itself because you don't actually, you didn't design your political, your Christian political thought to actually be successful um, as a, uh, in practice, like in when you have power. Uh, so I think there is some of that going on. Uh, it's certainly that's like the very kind of pious sounding talk. Uh, yeah. But yeah. yeah I, once I they get elected to public office, is it like now what? <laughs> okay. So, yeah. I, mean, I don't think that's true with like with everyone, but, but again, like if, if you try to make like the most pious sounding political thought and then, uh, and then when you think about it, it doesn't make sense. That's a good indication that they're really just relying on this, you know, this liberal order that lets you believe weird things. Yeah. And, and you have a tribe, but you're not actually serious about really taking over and asserting power and all that. Um, well, we've gone pretty long, actually. Uh, I want to give you the final word, though. Is there anything that you want to say, things that you want to respond well, to that well, I haven't I, brought up? I mean, what, what I wanted to say, uh, I forgot to say it, but it's uh, like, what, why, like, why am I getting hit from all sides? Right. I, I've thought about this. 
I think because the, the book, one, it assumes like Protestant retrieval stuff. Okay. So that that's like in the Davenant crowd wheelhouse. And I've benefited tremendously from various people in that. But those people also tend to be, you know, kind of squishes with regard to ethnic stuff. And so here I have a chapter on ethnicity that makes them uncomfortable. Okay. So then they don't want to then associate with that. And then, you know, little John writes a, a Christian nationalism is not racist um, article, which is really boring. Um, and so you have that side. Uh, and, and then you have the side that likes being transgressive, but they are theonomists. They are reconstructionists. They're like F like a um, federal vision light sort of people or a hardcore federal vision people like Lightheart. So they want to be like a sort of transgressive, but they come out from very different starting points and they don't like those starting points. So that I'm getting here from that side. And then there's the, like the typical people, like the people who are essentially like uh, the, the neo Anabaptists, like uh, Russell Moore. I don't know. He hasn't commented on the book, but that sort of person knows that crowd. And then you have like the, the two kingdom people. I, I'd say like that Kevin DeYoung is probably a sort of Mandrunian type two kingdom type. Uh, and so he, he's not going to like the idea of a Christian nation, Christian politics. So I think that it's just the combination of the different uh, elements of the book that each different group is going to not like, uh, is not like it. So, so you should have had five sides. books, you know, come out with them yeah, one by yeah. one. And then you would have had, you could build a coalition, but maybe yeah. it would fall away when you know you released whatever offended their sensibility. But I, I even like, even now, like when I say other things that are, that are, that are part of my assumptions, which I think are just kind of thoroughly based in thoroughly based, <laughs> but they're thoroughly based right. in 17th century reform thought. And I say it, uh, and even people who like my, my book kind of broadly, they still are uncomfortable with it because, and so there's like this pushback like up from that side, because I'm again, pulling from a, a different era, which I think is better than our current era. And it's and so that distances people as well. So anyway, I mean, the, I, I guess in on a positive note, I keep, keep going on and on, but uh, I would just ask people to, to read it as trying to create a coherent systematic that is both uh, account that is both theological and political that is logical. Um, and you can certainly disagree with it, but I, I think understanding that I tried to make it thoroughly founded upon our reform tradition. And uh, so just, just go, you know, take it from there. And if you, you know, you can reject this or that, but uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Just, uh, well, just approach for that. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you, Steven. I know you've given me yeah. about an hour and a half near a recording time. Um, yeah. I, I greatly appreciate it. God bless you and um, yeah. stay in touch. Let me know if there's anything else, you know, you want to talk about. Um, I'm sure this is not over. I'm sure. Uh, there's more coming. Um, last question for you. Are you going to write a follow-up or what, what are you doing next uh, to capitalize so I just, on? Yeah, I just wrote oh, like a follow-up book. No, I probably wouldn't do that. But the, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm starting, I started a, a, a sub stack and it's a project. It's called Institutes, Institutes, Plural of Christian Politics. And I'm going to try, it's just a, a project where I'm going to try to answer various questions about politics and over time. Uh, but I do have a review of response to Brian Matson's review, which is up there. We'll link uh, everyone to it so they can go check it out. Yeah. So, all right. Well, very nice. Uh, I appreciate it, Stephen. God bless. Yeah. Thanks.